Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. If you like American Catholic history, become a supporter at Locals or Patreon. We've got some great perks for supporters, including interviews, gifts, live discussions, and even items we pick up on our pilgrimages and travels. For more, visit our website, AmericanCatholicHistory.org. Please help us keep this going. Absolutely. Also, please be sure to give us a five-star rating and a great review at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. These help others to find us. Today, we're talking about the first bishop of Boston, the erudite and congenial Frenchman Jean-Louis Lefebvre de Chevreux. Now, we understand that in Boston, they pronounce it Chevreux, which is, well, something my French grandfather would not like. Yeah, I know. And, French, and Chevreux isn't even that hard. Even I can pronounce it, and I hate fumbling through French pronunciation. This just seems like an unnecessary Americanization. <laughs> but since we're doing American Catholic history, we'll accept the local pronunciation of the person's name, as we did during episode 121 on St. John Newman. Most people outside of Philadelphia pronounce it Neumann, but in Philly, it's Newman. So we went with that. Right. So that said, we'll get on with our discussion of Bishop Chevreux. Yes, he was a great man because of his great simplicity, kindness, tirelessness, and his largeness of spirit. Now, he's, he's almost out of central casting for amazing Catholic priest. <laughs> Bing Crosby could not play a more wholesome and effective parish priest. He arrived in Boston at a very, very difficult time. And through his personal ability and holiness, he stabilized the Catholic presence, and he gained respect within the city and the region. And he's another one who came to the U.S. because of the French Revolution. Along with bishops Simon Bertet, Benedict Joseph Flaget, Jean Dubois, and Louis de Bourg. Plus the prominent priests Gabriel Richard and Stephen Baden. And the Trappists, who founded Gethsemane Abbey, which we'll see again when we go back to Kentucky on pilgrimage later this year. Everyone should join us. It's a great time. Sure but, is. Enough, but enough about that. <laughs> the French Revolution also brought us the Sulpicians, who founded St. Mary's Seminary in Baltimore. And, indirectly, St. Rose Philippine Duchenne, among others. It's an incredible list. I really don't know how the church in the U.S. would have grown as it did if France hadn't, hadn't gone bloody anti-Catholic. God works in mysterious ways. And he certainly brought good on this continent out of the evil happening on that continent. Ah, uh, yes. So let's tell Chavarasa's story and how the French Revolution compelled him to cross the ocean. Okay, so he was born Jean-Louis Lefebvre de Chevreux. He was still in France at this point, after all. In, in January of 1768 in Mayenne, which is in northwest France. His father was a prominent government official, and Jean-Louis was afforded an excellent education. He was on the path to the priesthood from an early age, receiving tonsure at age 12. He was ordained a deacon in October of 1790, and just two months later, in December of 1790, he was ordained a priest. Now, according to canon law, 22 is too young to be ordained a priest, but he was considered so exceptional that a special dispensation was granted to allow his ordination. He was made a canon of the cathedral at Le Mans, and he was vicar to his uncle, who was pastor of the parish in his hometown of Mayenne. His uncle died in 1792, and Chevreux succeeded him as pastor. 
But 1792 was a bad year to be a priest in France. Yes. The French Revolution was in full swing, and Catholic priests were required by the government to swear an oath to the new government of France. The oath was impossible for Catholics to take, and many thousands of priests and bishops were executed for refusing. When Chevreux was faced with this choice, he refused. He only barely escaped Paris with his life, fleeing in disguise to England. Arriving in England in 1792, he learned enough English to teach French and mathematics and eventually serve as a priest. But in 1796, four years later, an old friend wrote to him asking for help. This old friend was Father Francois-Antoine Matignon. Matignon was in the United States at this point. He had been sent to New England by Bishop John Carroll in 1792 to figure out things in that part of the sprawling diocese of Baltimore, still the only diocese in the U.S. Matignon's job in New England wasn't easy. New England was still heavily Puritan and Congregationalist, and the Catholic minority was viewed with suspicion and contempt. This was in part because the 600 Catholics in New England at the time were mostly poor and uneducated Irish with a few Frenchmen. It also was due to the troublesome priests who dominated the Catholic landscape in these days. The first Mass in New England had been offered in 1788 by a French priest named Father de la Portier. He had deserted the French Navy and settled in New England, but he was suspended by his French bishop and had to stand down. But he didn't want to. Another French priest, Father Rousselet, arrived in 1789. But when he tried to assert that he was the new rightful pastor, Father de la Portière insisted that he also be involved. The parishioners were divided in their loyalties between the two priests, and the tension resulted in a brawl on Christmas Eve which destroyed every bit of church furniture that they had. Next was Father John Thayer. Thayer was an interesting character who may get his own episode. He was a former Congregationalist minister, and he was personally very wealthy. He became Catholic and was ordained a priest, but factionalism among the Catholics doomed his ministry also. This was when Father Matignon arrived with Bishop Carroll's mandate to clean things up. He deposed all of the warring priests and began to set things right. After a few years, he wrote to Father Chevreux with Bishop Carroll's blessing— Chevreux was invited to come to New England as a missionary and the permanent pastor of the region. Chevreux accepted. He arrived in Boston in 1796. When he arrived, the nearest Catholic church, as near as we can tell, was St. Peter's on Barclay Street in New York City, more than 200 miles away. So he set to work. His gentle way and his care for the poor and ill helped him to navigate through the various factions. No one of good will could dislike him for long. About his approach to others, he said, If our charity were only for the persons who please us, or for the moments when we feel ourselves naturally inclined to be amiable, it would have no merit. This was a man who made a point of being kind and friendly with everyone. He listened. He engaged with people in charity. He sought out the common ground and built friendships from there. And he was tireless. A maxim he lived by was, for even Christ did not please himself, which is from Romans 15.3. The point being, every moment and every action must be for the building up of the kingdom and not to please self. A tough charge, but there it is in St. Paul's words. Yeah. To this end, he sought out Catholics all over Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine. He spent a good deal of time, months at a stretch, among the native tribes in Maine, including the Penobscot. Many of them already were Catholic due to the French missionaries from Quebec, but they had not seen a priest in about 50 years. But the Penobscot weren't the only Catholics in Maine at the time. 
Near the towns of Damariscotta and Newcastle, a small pocket of devout, prosperous, and enthusiastic Irish Catholic families had kept the faith. Unlike the majority of the Irish Catholics in Boston, these were educated and successful men of business, and they aimed to eventually have a church of their own. And that's a little foreshadowing for you. Yeah, but don't jump ahead. He also took an active role in ministering to the sick. During his time in Boston, two different yellow fever epidemics broke out. In both cases, he acquitted himself well, ministering to the sick and dying all over town. And he took an interest in the needs of underserved individuals as well. One story tells of how he personally went for many consecutive evenings to minister to a very sick black man who lived all alone in a hovel on the outskirts of town. No one else would go near him. Another story tells that an elderly widow who lived alone could find no one to chop wood for her fires. One day, early in the morning, a neighbor was awakened by the sound of chopping. He went out and found Father Chevreau, excuse me, Chevreus, doing the work that no neighbor would volunteer to do. And he never found a need he didn't endeavor to fill. After just one year in Boston, one Protestant minister confided to him, I did not believe that a minister of your religion could be a good man. I declare to you that I esteem and venerate you as the most virtuous man I have ever known. And he moved equally well among the elite and the high class. We talked just last week in episode 140 about his role in helping the Episcopalian priest Daniel Barber convert to Catholicism. Barber was very skeptical, and Cheveris was utterly disarming. Claremont, New Hampshire, where the Barbers lived and where they converted, became one of the pockets of Catholics that Cheveris would visit, and those Claremont Catholics were mostly converts, not immigrants. One of the most significant moments between Cheveris and skeptical Protestants came during one cold and stormy day. Cheveris was walking along the road from Hingham back to Boston when a carriage stopped and welcomed him to share a sheltered ride. Cheveris and the gentleman engaged in a pleasant discussion, which both enjoyed greatly. The man was shocked to discover that the erudite and congenial man whom he had picked up was the Catholic Bishop of Boston. That man was Josiah Quincy, a prominent Protestant, future mayor of Boston, and future president of Harvard. Cheveris and Quincy remained close friends and correspondents. Quincy wasn't the only Protestant of position whom Cheveris befriended, however. No, there were many. In fact, in 1799, when Cheveris set about raising money for the first Catholic church in all of New England, Protestants of all classes were among the donors. All told, Protestants gave more than $3,000 to the cause. That's about $70,000 today. And the very first donation? That came from perhaps the most prominent New England Protestant of the day, John Adams. He gave $100, or $2,300 in today's money, and he was president of the United States at the time of the donation. Yeah, that's reminiscent of when George Washington gave the first donation to build St. Mary's Church in Alexandria, Virginia in the 1780s. Our first two presidents were prominent supporters of Catholic worship. Who knew? Yeah, well, we do, and so do our listeners now. And that's why we do this podcast. <laughs> But the donation wasn't just a one-off thing. Adams and Cheveris were correspondents and friends. At a banquet held to honor Adams when he was president, Cheveris was seated immediately next to him. And Adams himself acknowledged how unlikely that arrangement was, saying, What most astonishes me on this occasion is to see myself here and to see you there. Going back to that church, that was the Church of the Holy Cross built on Franklin Street. It was built between 1799 and 1803, and it was designed by the prominent architect Charles Bullfinch. 
Bullfinch, of course, is considered the first master architect born in America. He is considered one of the fathers of an American style of architecture, and he is best known for the iconic and beautiful Massachusetts State House there in Boston. In fact, he had just completed the State House when he began working on Holy Cross Church. Bullfinch was another prominent Protestant who was taken with Cheveris's personal qualities and was willing to set aside any anti-Catholicism he held to design a beautiful church. Chevrolet got involved in two other big things during his time in Boston. In 1807, he donated a portion of his personal library to help establish the Boston Athenaeum, one of the earliest major libraries in the U.S. After his death, the rest of his library was donated to the Athenaeum, and they still possess his books. And then in 1816, Chevrolet supported the establishment of the Provident Institution for Savings in the Town of Boston. This was the first chartered savings bank in the United States. It was established by a host of prominent men of Boston, quote, to provide a safe and profitable mode of enabling industrious persons of all descriptions to invest such parts of their earnings or property as they can conveniently spare in a manner which will afford them both profit and security, unquote. In short, it was a secure place for the lower-income people to save a bit of money here and there and earn some interest on it. Cheveris supported it as a way to inspire more responsible and thrifty behavior among the Catholics. Now, this wasn't the first time that Cheveris had taken an interest in helping his people by helping them improve their financial literacy and their financial position. He had worked with many individual Catholics and families to learn about the benefits of savings and how to invest. His shrewd business mind helped many Catholics to improve their position. So think about that. When Cheveris showed up in 1796, Catholics were a reviled and contemptible minority. The priests had mostly been troublemakers with their own agendas, and the main body of Catholics were poor Irishmen with no prospects to advance. Yeah, in just three years, by 1799, he had changed that so dramatically. Yeah, but the majority of Catholics were still Irish. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's still a lot of Irish around Boston. They yeah. make sure you know it. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he had changed the conditions for the Catholics. Suddenly, Catholicism wasn't just the faith of troublesome priests and unruly Irishmen. Legislators from the State House sought his counsel. Ministers invited him to preach from their own pulpits. Protestant high society sought his company and donated significantly to the construction of a Catholic church on a fashionable street in town. So all that said, when Boston was made a diocese in 1808, Chevreus was the no-brainer to be the first bishop with the new diocese. He was consecrated bishop by now Archbishop John Carroll on All Saints Day, November 1st, 1810. Holy Cross Church became the cathedral, and now he was Bishop John Chevreus. But his workload only barely changed. In some ways, it became even easier. He no longer had to wait for the approval of Carroll way down in Baltimore to establish parishes and consecrate altars, or adjudicate matters of canon law, or do confirmations. Now he was charged with those responsibilities, and he traveled through his diocese to make not just missionary visits, but apostolic visits to his parishes. On one of his earliest visits, he returned to the Irish and Penobscot Catholic community in Newcastle, Maine. There, in 1808, he dedicated the second parish church in New England, St. Patrick's, in Newcastle. This was the first church in the U.S. to be dedicated to St. Patrick, and the original 1808 church still stands. It is the oldest Catholic church in New England. Of that dedication, he said, quote, The church is called St. Patrick's. The name seemed to gratify our friends here. 
I like it myself because it proclaimed that our church here is the work of Irish piety. This isn't to say everyone everywhere treated him as John Adams and Josiah Quincy had. Old prejudices dry harder than that. Plenty of Protestants throughout New England still did not like the Catholics. In one episode, he traveled to Northampton because two Catholic men had been convicted of murder and were scheduled for execution. They wrote to Bishop Severus protesting their innocence and asking him to come and pray with them and then offer their funeral masses. He set out. But when he arrived in Northampton, he was denied accommodation at the usual places of hospitality because he was Catholic. When the crowd gathered for the execution, jeering the men, he faced the mob and scolded them for their bloodthirstiness. He couldn't win friends everywhere. Some people were just not interested. In 1815, Archbishop John Carroll of Baltimore died and the Jesuit priest Leonard Neal succeeded him. Archbishop Neal respected Cheverus greatly and asked the Pope to name Cheverus his auxiliary there in, Bal in Baltimore. Such a move would have almost assured that Cheverus would have succeeded Neal in Baltimore when he died, which he did just two years later. But Cheverus refused the request, and he was spared. He wished to remain in Boston. In 1820, he welcomed a community of Ursuline sisters to Boston. Now, this is an interesting story because of how it began and how it ended. Yeah, um... Isn't that the story of most stories? Well, yes, but this story more so. Okay, fine. Go on. Yep. Thank you. First off, the money that made it possible for the Ursulines to come over from Europe came from Father John Thayer. Yes, the same John Thayer who had caused problems in Boston before Cheverus arrived. As we mentioned, Thayer was an independently wealthy man. When he died, he left his money to Father Matignon. Father Matignon had been helping Bishop Cheverus for years, so when he came into this considerable amount of money, he offered it to Cheverus. Cheverus used it to set up a community of Ursuline nuns in a house near the cathedral. The Ursulines ran a boarding school for girls, and eventually, when they needed more space, they moved out to a larger building in Charlestown to the north of Boston. And then it all went up in flames in 1834 in one of the earliest spectacular instances of anti-Catholic violence in the U.S., but that will be a story for another day. Yes, but Cheverus wouldn't be around to see that unfortunate event. His time as Bishop of Boston ended in 1823. He had spent 27 years in Boston, and he did everything he could to build the diocese and serve his flock. When he arrived, only 600 Catholics lived in New England, with most in Boston. By 1823, that number had swelled to more than 3,500 due to immigration and conversion. But his health had begun to deteriorate in 1818. He still had many years of life left, but the rigors of his ministry in New England weighed heavily upon his condition. Cheverus also had long desired to return to France. When King Louis XVIII took the French throne and restored the monarchy, that return to France was more possible. And then Louis XVIII prevailed upon the Pope to name Cheverus Bishop of Montalban in south-central France. So it was with relief, but also much sadness, that Bishop Cheverus accepted the appointment in 1823. His flock was, understandably, shocked. They petitioned Rome to reverse the appointment, but to no avail. After a tearful farewell, he sailed for France. John Cheverus was, once again, Jean-Louis Lefebvre de Chevreau. In 1826, he was named Archbishop of Bordeaux, and in February 1836, he was made a cardinal. He would not live with the Red Beretta for long, however, 
Jean-Louis Lefebvre de Chevreux died in Bordeaux in July of 1836. He was 68 years old. The Cathedral of the Holy Cross on Franklin Street became too small for the Catholic population by the end of the 1850s. It was demolished in 1862 to be replaced as cathedral by the present Holy Cross Cathedral in the south end of Boston. But in 1950, near the site of the original Holy Cross, a plaque was placed which reads, Near this site stood the Cathedral of the Holy Cross, established 1803 by Jean-Louis de Chevreux, first Catholic Bishop of Boston, missionary to the Penobscot Indians, friend of President John Adams, advisor to our state legislature, one of America's noblest priests. He stood by the bedside of Catholic and Protestant alike. This tablet placed by a group of Protestant businessmen, 1950. A good summation of a great and holy man. This has been American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by the StarQuest Production Network. If you enjoy American Catholic History, become a supporter on Locals or Patreon. Get information about both and the perks of being a supporter at AmericanCatholicHistory.org support. Also on our website, sign up for our newsletter, learn more about Bishop Chevreux, see our upcoming pilgrimages, and find other episodes. Also, be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. We love getting your feedback and suggestions for episodes. You can email us at feedback at AmericanCatholicHistory.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow us on Twitter at ACH1513. I'm Noel Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by StarQuest. <laughs>